Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today it's an immense pleasure to be joined by editor, writer, publisher, and musician V Vale. Vale, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, as you know, I met your mom many years ago. It's amazing that she had a daughter who's literate and <laughs> and in the punk rock uh, ethos tradition. Because, you know, your mom wrote the first book that I ever bought or called Punk Rock under the name Virginia Boston. <laughs> to give you just a little bit more um, introduction for all the people listening, described as the only surviving 70s punk publisher who never quit, Vale founded San Francisco's first punk zine, Search and Destroy, which was launched with 100 bucks each from Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Falangetti and published at the City Lights bookstore. For Vale, punk provided a launching pad for other cultural and anthropological explorations, including industrial music, the writings of J.G. Ballard and William Burroughs, feminism, plus incredibly strange filmmaking and music, which he's chronicled with the research series of publications founded in 1980. Vale was also keyboardist for the early configuration of Blue Cheer before it became famous as a power trio. Um, so Vale, once again, thank you so much for joining us. It's just so wonderful. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, um, briefly, we met kind of originally through my mum. She told me, you know, about your connection through those um, punk rock days and obviously her book, Punk Rock, um, which I think in Britain definitely was was the first book um, sort of chronicling that period. Um, you had a copy, and then I think she came and hung out with you in San Francisco or something? Yes, that was long ago. I, I wish I had tape recorded that like you do, because <laughs> I can't remember a thing except that she was nice. And I thought she had kind of blondish hair. She has an afro, a blonde afro. Yes, an afro. I was about to say a big he high head of hair, but then I wondered if I misremembered, but you're right. <laughs> and was it, had she reached out to you or had you reached out to her? How did that happen? Beats me. She, I'm guessing that I remember her coming to my place, so I'm guessing that she found me because she happened to be in San Francisco. And, you know, I did the first punk rock scene here for, for the first two years of punk here. Anyway, I have this white table that everyone comes and sits at. It's, it's eight feet long, and <laughs> many people have sat at that table, including uh, William Burroughs, J.G. Ballard, and Henry Rollins, tons of people. Did uh, Virginia Boston sit at that table? Oh, yes. Yeah, you, you could, if you ever visit here, you could sit in the chair she sat in. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you're more or less following in her footsteps of being a historian, really, historian-slash-anthropologist, um, philosopher, <laughs> because we have to keep rebel culture alive, because counterculture is definitely against the much more massive, dominant, you know, culture, straight culture, whatever you call it, which, of course, I... I always urge everyone to ignore as much as possible because it's all mind control serving, you know, the capitalist system of everything you do must be done for the profit motive. 
and uh, you know the goal of capitalism is make maximum profit in least amount of time. Hell with humanity or the planet or the animals or any of that. <laughs> Absolutely. I think um, you know punk was the last international rebel movement for me, at least. I never got into hip hop personally because I it's not me, but punk gave enough to last the rest of your life. In other words, there is so much to research, so much history, so many records that were made, you know, in the early punk days, and then they inspired other generations, and it's just a huge rebel culture, what I call a cultural continuum. So if you ever think you'll be bored with researching punk, I think you just haven't worked hard enough to find, you know, punk in Australia or punk in, I don't know, Vietnam. I mean, it's all over the world. But you have to find it. You have to look for it. You have to research it, to use my word. And that spirit, as you mentioned, is so enduring. It feels so enduring. I think so, because it's a very simple... It's based on principles. You know, one of them is um, strive to do work against the status quo, but the status quo constantly changes, as you know. And, you know, I, I think also we're here to work for more consciousness, for more beings. (laughs) I guess humans are part of that. And, of course, we're we're always trying to investigate the meaning of freedom and liberty as society changes. And, and, you know, someone coined the phrase, freedom not license. In other words, yeah, you are sort of free to do what you want, but you don't want to damage other humans or other species, for that matter, in whatever you do. You try not to. I, I mean, even even tree, even tree, plants have consciousness, as we've seen in that book, The Secret Life of Plants, which came out a million years ago. So, And now with the Internet, consciousness can be so huge and yet so, so narrow and mind-controlling, as we've seen in America. So, you know, you have to beware of your information sources and um, you have to be always be critical I mean the dialectic must always be there whenever you hear any information or see it your first task is to immediately contradict it negate it Hmm. and then you sort of do a synthesis and analysis later I'm the kind of person who still loves writing on paper with a pen but I think a lot of people are, in the handwriting terms, almost illiterate now. I mean, or if they do write something, you can hardly read it, or, the, or you can tell they're just not used to writing anything pen on paper. But, you know, that's life. They, they prior, maybe they're super fast at thumb typing on their iPhones, which is probably how most people write these days, or a lot of people. Well, I'm I'm definitely with you um, on that one, and actually on everything you said, I think um, we're at a, a critical point on the planet and as a as a collective species um, to really sort of raise the game and um, in, and in many ways reclaim a lot of things that we've lost along the way. You know, a lot of wisdom, a lot of respect, a lot of Um, harmony between you know human beings and the natural world that actually used to exist and we've just um, 
kind of gone into some sort of uh, amnesia, you know, with the rise of technology and convenience and, um, you know, all of the the exploitative um, practices and businesses and how much can we get out of this this planet? How many resources can we take? And so I think the relationship between us and, and nature is also like a reflection of, in some ways, us and ourselves, you know, and I think it needs a, a major overhaul. Um, but in, in that sort of vein, um, you know, the idea of this show, the subject of this show, Orange Juice for the Years, um, is taken from a quote by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that really goes. Um, and the quote is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, um, Vale, what, what does that quote mean to you? Well, I mean, I, I think music is also used for mind control and for lesser than most honorable Motives. I mean, I think of the great music. Oh, oh, I was about to say something forbidden that's completely will will turn people off. So I won't say it. But let's say that um, music is very powerful and sort of a magnetic center attraction for rebel social movements or social movements that once were rebellious but then became triumphalist or something. I'm thinking of fascist movements in the 20th century. Let's just leave it at that. Music was very powerful. And, and of course, people went to punk shows for the music. But to me, it was much more really alternative way of living more minimalistly. I, I mean, it was a reaction, you could argue, to the previous underground called the Hippies, which people wore tie-dyed clothes and long hair and all that stuff. And at least in San Francisco, punk started out with, I don't know, people trying to wear all black clothes like me, and you couldn't buy any. You had to actually dye them yourself. I mean, with writ dye, blue jeans, and I mean, it was just impossible to find all black clothes. But eventually, they started showing up, you know, when there's a profit motive, then corporations will manufacture black Levi's, for example. To me, punk was about trying to be as creative as you can possibly be and working for the man or working a job as little as possible. But I always surprise people when I say the only way I could afford to do Search and Destroy in 1977 was because my rent was $37.50 a month. And I lived in a great neighborhood right next to the Art Institute where I'd go have coffee every morning. And... Um, and yeah, punk was an art movement. I mean, definitely some of the most creative people in early punk went to the Art Institute, or teenagers even, some of them. What else? I, I Also, for my work, I only worked 20 hours a week at City Lights Bookstore but for minimum wage. But for some reason, if you got food stamps, that seemed like a lot of money. So, so I had plenty of time to type up my interviews and, you know, work on layout and all that stuff, for which you have to do back in the analog days before computers were invented. Now you can do the absolute slickest things. Hell, you can produce a Rizzoli art book or Abrams art book or something on your laptop and then send it out to get printed at one of these short press run places. It's 
pretty miraculous now how what you can do just on a computer plus internet. I mean, that's changed everything as we know. And as we know, everyone's going to be working at home pretty much, I think, or unemployed or <laughs> working as delivery people or <laughs> working in Amazon warehouses. I don't know. So what What else if, you know, in addition to... Oh, music. Um, Sorry, I strayed far from the music. No worries. Here's the wonderful thing what Punk did. It lowered the bar to the ground for writing songs, or you didn't have to write songs. I mean, we had people just sit up and jam and noodle on a on a Casio keyboard for a half hour, and that was and that was their music set. Or or they'd caterwaul or sing or howl or do spoken word, whatever. And the nice thing about punk was it was so small you knew everyone by first name pretty much in the first year and a half. And you literally had to know so little in terms of technical, virtuosic, you know, Juilliard school music training to to write songs that kind of were more or less protest songs, really. They, or they articulated, you know, minority viewpoints. Or There's plenty of fuel for the fire in terms of disgruntlement. And you just channel that into songwriting or composing. And so it was an amazing time. The punk started out with everyone wearing pretty much dark clothes or op art day glow clothes, nothing much in between. And so you could spot us, you know, for the, for the first time, a mass movement of women with super short or spiky hair arose. So you could see us and you could recognize other collective affinity souls on the street if they just arrived from another town. And, you know, you might want to talk to them based on how they looked. You wouldn't do that now because now the way everyone looks is so over the map. But back then it made it easier. So, Vale, what was the first song that imprinted on you? Oh, well, see, I'm from a different generation. Like, you know, I, I was born in an, in an American concentration camp for the Japanese during World War II, the end of World War II. And I didn't remember anything of the camp because I was too young. My mother, of course, totally told me about that. She hated it and thought it was unjust. And, and I immediately thought, yeah, how come they didn't put the Germans and the Italians in camps, too? Because, you know, World War II was fighting against, you know, Germans, Italians, and Japanese. And then I found out later that maybe a strong motivation for putting Japanese in camps was to steal their land and their real estate because they had gotten some of the best land in, for crop growing cheap in the Imperial Valley and other very uh, soil and water-rich areas of California that grew produce that everyone needed. So I always thought there's got to be some real estate interest behind this putting the Japanese in camps, which no one ever talks about. But I'm paranoid, and that's the way I feel about that topic. But anyway, I, I was lucky enough to be on the planet when rock and roll first invented itself. And the first song as a kid I heard was on a radio in a car that, that amazed me. And, and then someone told me, oh, yeah, this is rock and roll or something. And it was Shaboom 
I guess it's by a band called the Crew Cuts, as I remember. I may have the name wrong, but um, it had nonsense lyrics. Shaboom, shaboom. Anyway, that freed me linguistically. Two things freed me. I realized, wow, you can invent all these nonsense words and songs with nonsense words in them, like... Wow. And actually, earlier than that, I I was adopted by a black family for a year and a half when I was uh, about, I don't know, five and a half to seven, some years like that. And I remember visiting a, uh, another black family who had a wind-up Victrola with 78s. And I'm sure I, for the first time I heard slide guitar, I think it was might have been Elmore James, the sky is crying or something, but you would be challenged to understand the language. Just like, you know, black people in America have always invented their own language, I guess, but it really showed up on these early recordings of blues. Like, you can hardly understand what they were saying, and so you had to really work to figure that out. And I thought, wow, that's kind of neat. You know, to hear, hear like slide guitar, which violates the laws of every, you know, being on perfect pitch. Because blues music, slide guitar, specializes in hitting the notes between the notes, if you follow me, or, sli or sliding between notes. And all these things are sort of liberating. So you're always, you're always looking for more liberation in a, in a weird way or looking for challenges to your, status quo aesthetics. I mean, I didn't realize until way later in life how important your aesthetics are because aesthetics are blinders. In other words, if you have a set of aesthetics that says, well, only opera and classical music are, are worthy of respect, the rest is all just trash, well, then you're going to miss out on a lot of other music. In the Bay Area, you had a great radio station called KPFA, and then they would have these people, certain DJs would play music from all over the world. And that's kind of liberating, too, to hear other scales that you didn't even know existed. And to hear things like gamelan music, which is it's very contrapuntal, you know, coming from some other mindset that you can barely comprehend. Anyway, the whole point is it's crazy that we're on this planet we keep learning and learning and learning and learning, and as soon as we know the most, we die. I mean, that's kind of crazy to me. <laughs> it is. It's it's pretty uh, ludicrous and doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but um, I guess there's some uh, beauty in that. But just returning to that first song that imprinted on you, um, let's take a listen now to Shaboom by The Chords. Life could be a dream If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream Sweetheart, hello, hello again Shaboom and open with me to get boom Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding and that was Shaboom by The Chords and that was the track that Vivale chose as the first song that imprinted on him um, and you said that you were in the car and it came on the radio um, do you remember how old you were and, and do you remember where you were going? Well, no, I don't remember where I was going but I'm sure it was, it was 
in a car with white people, and I was living with the black family in Whittier, California, and they were kind of, they were older than me, but but they were kind of hip, I guess. And and if you're in the front seat of a car, the, the radio is really nice and loud in your face. And it was before I was seven, that's for sure. Do you remember what it made you feel? Yeah, you laughed. Everyone was laughing and smiling and feeling good. <laughs> because it was just absurd. You know, like, what did it mean? It sort of excited your imagination to figure out, how did anyone write this? You know, how did they have the freedom to come up with this? So that therefore your own consciousness gets a little expanded when you go down the the path of wondering, I guess. <laughs> so you shared just a little bit of um, what sounds like an incredibly difficult upbringing. Um, you were part of a, you know, tiny Japanese American minority in a small town in Riverside County um, and described yourself as a Japanese kid on welfare with an insane mother and no father ever. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about just what, what that was like for you? I didn't think it was bad at all. I mean, for one thing, I learned real early that my mom was crazy because I had to live in all these foster homes before I was seven. Like, um, my favorite home of all was in Peoria, Illinois, with a Polish family called the Ivanovskis who changed their name to Ivans, Bust and Fritzy Ivans and their daughter, Pat. And they were always laughing and joking, and that was absolutely my favorite foster home. My least favorite was living in with my father's brother's family in Fresno, and maybe they didn't have enough money coming in because I think only the mom worked, <laughs> and the father just had nothing to do all day except try and teach us to become, you know, sumo wrestlers or whatever, which I hated. I hate macho culture as a result of that. We were forced to box. I was forced to box my cousin with bare knuckles every day, like hit him as hard as you could. Like, what? This is not fun. And boy, was I glad to get out of that home. And then I, oh, I went from there to the black family, and I liked being with the black family. But did I tell you that I met the first girl in my life ever, a blonde girl named Bonnie, and when I met her, she took a glass eyeball out of her left eye and 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 showed it to me in the palm of my hand and handed it to me so I could feel it. Wow. And then she took it back and licked it in her mouth and put it back in her eye. <laughs> I mean, that's one memorable way to meet someone. <laughs> And then I loved the rabbits she had, and I said, you know, and I said, well, what happens to them when they get older? I said, oh, we kill them and eat them, <laughs> like real casually. <laughs> like you're holding this cute white rabbit that's kind of a albino with, with literal pink, pinkish-reddish eyes, which kind of looks amazing, and you're holding this furry thing in your arms and... <laughs> The idea of killing it and eating it somehow, <laughs> the way she said it so casually, <laughs> it was shocking. 
And what were you like as a kid? You know, how, like what were you like during that period? I think I learned that the way to survive all these foster homes is to be as funny as possible <laughs> and to laugh as much as possible or smile uh, as much as possible. So that's the lesson you learn. Humor is your salvation. Smiling, especially. Smiling is free. It costs no money to smile. Well, and people can't see you, unfortunately, because obviously we're on radio. But if you um, find a photo of Vale, it's pretty hard to... Well, it's pretty hard to ever find a photo of you where you haven't got a huge smile on your face. And it's a wonderful smile, and it's very infectious. So um, it's interesting to learn, you know, in some ways about about the origin of that and just how that was something, you know, you adopted from when you were younger. Oh, yeah, it's, it's all about surviving, I think. And I remember when, when I was seven or just turning seven, I, the social worker administering my mom, because there used to be, America was a great place then to grow up because they had social welfare for mentally disturbed parents. And I remember the social worker came to the black people's home, and the woman, I'll never forget her, Miss Na- she was a miss, not a M-R-S, Nana Hearn, she said, um, well, who do you want to live with, your mother or, you know, the hodnets? And I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Instead of answering, I asked my mom, will you give me piano lessons? And she said, yes. I says, well, I want to live with my mom for a while then. As a child, I could play by ear pretty fast in piano. So almost anything I, I heard, I could just play my own version. I think I have perfect pitch and all that stuff, or pretty what they call pitch memory. I mean, you know, you can hear, you can hear something on the radio, and then you, can, oh, yeah, it's in the key of A or, or E or E flat or whatever. But um, those are things you're born with. Yeah, in fact, I have a lot of aphorisms I live. With. Why, such as friends are born, not made. I like that. I mean, that's just the way I look at life. You can't strain yourself to try to be friends with someone. I mean, some people you just meet and you instantly have an affinity with, and others less so, and then others not at all, (laughs) or very little. I think you can talk to anyone, though. I mean, you've experienced this in what you do with with the radio, it doesn't matter what the lifestyle is. You you quickly try and find some common ground, as they say, or some overlap, and and that's where you you start in. You or you ask people questions because everyone likes to talk about themselves. I guess, including me. Huh? I completely agree, and I think you know that commonality is so much more present than it is absent. But it's just about you know, meeting one another as human beings and and coming from that place and forgetting all the other stuff, you know. It's I think we keep so so many things, both fields but also how we relate to one another very much siloed, you know, in these sort of individual silos where we think, Oh, you know, they're in this field and I wouldn't be able to understand or I wouldn't be able to talk or or they're of this creed or whatever and it, I just feel like we're so much more similar than we are different and we can we, we're at a point in time where we should really be seeing that and celebrating that um so you you basically went to live with your mom at the age of seven so you could get 
piano, piano lessons. lessons. Oh, yeah, but, but I, I would rather be with my mom. Oh, I know what I said at the social meeting worker. I said, hey, mom, I'll be supporting you because I looked at the paperwork and it said aid to the parents of financially dependent children. And that's the exact welfare my mom is getting, $80 a month or $78 a month for that. But you could, two people could live on $78 a month back then. Mm. You know, your rent would be anywhere from 15 to 25 a month, and then the rest is food and whatever else you need. You couldn't afford a car, though. So what was the first album, Vale, that really had a big impact on you? Um, and shaped who you are? Well, uh, it took a long time for me to become counterculture because if you're, if, if you're really poor and on welfare, maybe even, shall we say, a person of color, you're kind of conditioned to try and be like the dominant strata of society, you know, the, the rich white people. I don't know what you call them. And it takes a, quite a while before you realize that you, you ought to maybe <laughs> rebel against all this. And be counterculture. Of course, you know that word didn't even exist till the '60s. Some guy invented the making of a counterculture. I mean, that was the name of his book. And then, though, suddenly everyone's using the word counterculture, but it didn't exist. I mean, I grew up as a conformist, kind of, sadly, but that's the way kids are. I had the best possible upbringing for a poor person. I think my mom lived in a town called La Sierra in Riverside County, but it was a total Seventh-day Adventist town. And most people don't even know what Seventh-day Adventists are about, but it's like, I can tell you, it's sort of maybe shocking. You don't eat meat because they had a huge Loma Linda Foods factory in town that most people worked at that specialized in making fake meat way before this current fad of designer meats being produced. And they're all delicious, like fake hamburger and fake hot dogs are really great. So no meat, couldn't even buy fish in the town. There's only one store in the town. Couldn't buy meat, couldn't buy uh, fish, could not buy any alcohol. And I think that's one reason I wasn't abused as a child. And, and no coffee. They're against coffee. They're against caffeine. No caffeine tea, even. It was just herbal tea, alfalfa tea was the big favorite. They were big advocates of natural foods and raw foods. And uh, someone told me that demographic has the longest lifespan in America. I wouldn't be surprised because of of these restrictions. Oh, and they're, oh, and we were totally trying to avoid all corporate pharmaceuticals, any drugs, even aspirin. But, you know, when penicillin got invented, well, obviously they, they were forced to say, well, you can use penicillin, you know, because it could save your life. There's there's also more doctors and nurses per capita in this religion than any other because they had a whole bunch of medical schools. Their idea was that, you know, first you heal their body, then you convert their soul. So they they thought everyone should be a missionary and go places and heal people and then start giving them the Seventh-day Adventist gospel. <laughs> And, oh, no dancing, did I say that? Oh, uh, no movies, did I say that? Let's see, what else? Of course, no sex, ha um, So it really was a kind of cult, but, but not necessarily a harmful cult. Because the town was so safe, I never heard of one burglary 
the whole time I was there. I also sort of got to know the names of everyone who lived in the whole town just because I was curious. I didn't really know them, but I, I knew their names. And it's, it was amazing. I never owned a house key the whole time I lived there. Wow. So if you weren't, if you weren't allowed to watch movies and, and no dancing, um, which, you know, pertains to music, but I'm sure there was still music around. I, you know, I know that books were a big friend of yours from even very early, early on. Well, the reason why, because it got 115 degrees in the summertime. It was so hot and, you know, I, we couldn't afford air conditioning. That was a luxury. And so I learned real early to just go to the libraries and hang out. There were three libraries in the town, the, the grade school, the high school, and the college library. And college library was by far the best. They were all air-conditioned, and, you know, I could stay in the library all day long and no one would bother me. And, and so I got this idea to look at every book in every library, <laughs> at least crack it open and ignore the titles. <laughs> and see if I could find something interesting. So, you know, the library is an amazing place, and they're free, like Jesus. I didn't really have many friends, hardly, almost none, I think, in the whole time I was in the town, like very few friends. But um, I had the library. They didn't used to have this young adult market then, and they did have children's books market, but they were just too simple to read. Although they could be beautiful, like my my early Alice in Wonderland book, all beautifully illustrated, color even. And in fact, Alice in Wonderland is an amazing book for a kid to read, for the imagination. Yeah, I, I read a bunch of books that were very formative very early in life, sem- seventh grade for sure. By seventh grade, I was like mail ordering all kinds of stuff, mainly since I didn't have much money Mainly, I'd send for every free catalog I could get, and they would always send it, them to you free. And and they can kind of expand your life, too. An amazing catalog was called the Johnson Smith Catalog, which was just full of stuff all over the map that was weird <laughs> or interesting or funny or pr- even pranksterish. Like, you could order a whoopee cushion. <laughs> and you put this under a regular cushion on a chair and then people sit on it and then it emits a fart sound. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> anyway, you know, if you want to amuse yourself, you can. Almost anywhere, including a small desert town, you had to walk two miles in the blazing sun to get to this drugstore, but the drugstore had a paperback rack. And the earliest books I bought were were like the story of philosophy by Will Durant and great dialogues of Plato. But I was already fourteen then. That's old. Um, so with that, with that painting a wonderful picture of the kind of books that you were reading um, from very you know very young age through to your teens, and um, and then obviously we'll talk about your you know later life in just a minute. Um, but what was the first album that? in that same sort of vein, had a real impact on on you? Yeah, I have to admit that that when I was around 14, I somehow would try to get jobs and earn my own money, mowing lawns, hoeing weeds, you know, digging ditches, literally digging ditches, whatever I could get. 
and then I I bought myself a television set and an antenna, and I also bought myself a record player. And they had these wonderful ads where you could get records free, but then you had to promise to buy, I don't know, three to six more in the next year. And they'd send you every month a, a record. They called it on approval. And you could either pay for it or return it. But they were all classical music. And, and the first thing I got was like the Nine Symphonies of Beethoven in a box set by Arturo Toscanini. And that that's you got that free. And then you had to promise to buy other records. And they're, usually the records are really great to my ears, at least. But at, at the same time I was doing this, for years I'd been listening to rock and roll on a tiny transistor radio I got, which didn't even have a battery. I got it from a cereal box. It had an earphone and a little... It was a little rectangle with an earphone and a little pole you pulled out. And that's the tuning dial. And we had two great rock and roll radio stations that I could get in Riverside or La Sierra. One was KFWB, I'll never forget, B. Mitchell Reed. And then the other station was 690 from Tijuana. And and these radio stations played amazing rock and roll 45s from all over the world. But I didn't have any money, but, but I got suckered into the record club through the mail. It was the ICA Victor Record Club. But anyway, let me fast forward to um, a few years later. Um, whenever Peter, Paul, and Mary came out, not the first album, I think it's the second album with Blowing on the Wind on it, with by, a song by the then unknown Bob Dylan. But Bob Dylan wrote the most amazing liner notes on the back of this, telling what it was like to, like, I don't know, move from Minnesota to East Village of New York City and try and lead an underground life and be a folk singer slash rebel. I, I need to find those liner notes someday. I mean, they're probably free online. But they were like a blueprint of how to live a counterculture lifestyle, this Bob Dylan liner notes on this Peter, Paul, and Mary album. Well, let's take a listen to Blowing in the Wind by Peter, Paul, and Mary from the album In the Wind. How many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever And that was Blowing in the Wind by Peter, Paul and Mary from the record In the Wind. Um, And that was the album that Vale chose as the first record that imprinted on him. Um, And just to, you know, kind of give us a bit more of that context, do you remember how old you were when you first heard that? Obviously, you you were telling us how much the liner notes, you know, really... Um, imprinted on you um, from Bob Dylan about this kind of the way to live as an artist? Oh, I must have been 19 to 20. Actually, I was so lucky to be at Berkeley because it was a matter of purest integrity that you be a folk musician and be acoustic. And then the next music movement I was part of was the hippie music movement, which most people don't really understand 
the best stuff never got recorded, I think. That's why one of my aphorisms is first technology, then culture. Because you, you could argue that Bob Dylan just took electrically amplified technology and, you know, enhanced his own folk songs that really kind of made them better, if you ask me. Going back a bit to the um, that kind of progression from, you know, reading a lot of books and having that sort of appetite, you then studied anthropology and... Um, and then ended up getting accepted into Harvard, but actually you turned that down and went to UC Berkeley to study English. Um, do you think that all your studies influenced what you went on to do with Search and Destroy and then later research? Well, looking back, I kind of wish I had, instead of being an English literature major, which I only did as the easiest alternative or the most interesting. But I did have an early anthropology class, and I wish I'd gone that, there more. But then I probably wouldn't be talking to you now. I probably would have somehow ended up an academic anthropologist or something. So what I didn't tell most people is that I grew up in such a sheltered way and, and more or less economically limited in some ways but but there was a college at La Sierra, and for the first two years of college, I did not go to UC Berkeley, which is what I used to oversimplify and tell people. No, I was too chicken to to go there. I I stayed at the at the Seventh Day Adventist College, lived in the dorm, and in the dorm was the first time that I met other peers, shall we say, and I kind of gravitated towards the smartest people on the campus. There was an older guy, a ministry student, and but he was kind of a rebel too. And he, and somehow we both had a copy of How by Allen Ginsberg, and we we would both practice in front of each other reading it like we were in a beatnik poetry reading. How, you know, just kids really. And my my roommate for the sophomore year was a super smart guy in physics named Winfield Hill. And we said, F this town, we're going to go to Harvard. And we both applied and we both got in. And then we both went and visited the campus in the summer. And I was just scared F-less, F dot dot L-E-S-S. I just was totally intimidated by the campus. And I didn't know anyone there. Tuition, of course, was was a lot of money then. It was not nothing compared to now, but... but, you know, I would have had to get a loan. But I also applied to UC Berkeley, and there I had a beatnik uncle in San Francisco that I could rely on. And sure enough, I lived with him, stayed at his house for free. And I mean, it was just much better for me to go to Berkeley, and I'm so glad I did, because the year I went there was the year of the free speech movement. That was mind-boggling, all these people rebelling, you know, against the campus and demonstrating and... And that was even before the anti-Vietnam War movement, but it was mind-boggling being there for the free speech movement and hearing Mario Savio get up and talk. He was really eloquent at the time. And so what what inspired you to begin Search and Destroy? Um, I know that you mentioned earlier that, um, and, and in our other conversations, that there was this feeling that the underground, you know, beats and hippies, a lot of that hadn't been documented adequately. 
um, and you wanted to sort of capture punk from the beginning. Um, and also, wasn't Warhol a source of inspiration for that? Oh, yeah. Well, of course. Everything in my life has been luck and chance, it seems like. There was this girl who was my neighbor I somehow met. She lived a block away when I was living with my uncle on Petrero Hill in San Francisco. And she, and she was like this huge Warhol fan and invited me over to her house and showed me all the Warhol stuff she had, including that amazing book early book that had inside of it it had these inserts and you'd pull something out and drop it into a bowl of water and become a flower you know stuff like that it's a famous warhol book very early printed on newsprint i think but color and and so we we both decided to go to see warhol's first painting show in new york it was at some gallery that looked more like a rich person's huge living room than an art gallery. But she and I got a rent-a-car, a driveway car, so you could get a free trip to New York just by delivering a car from San Francisco to New York City. So that's what we did, and we went and saw that Warhol show. Yeah, Warhol changed my life. But anyway, the, the point is I lived through these the hippie underground for sure, and even the folk underground. I, and I began to think that there wasn't enough real documentation of these underground movements. And I predicted there would be something like a punk movement, but I didn't know what it would be called. I mean, because I knew enough history to say, look, well, you know, in 1955 or so, you had seven, you had the Beatniks. How came out in 1957, but was first read in 1955. And then, you know, in 1965, to seven, you had the hippies, so what's it going to be in 1975 to 77? And it's going to, and they're always kind of opposite from each other, you know, they're they're not imitating the same, they want to be as different as possible from the earlier rebel underground. <laughs> so I, I was ready to do Search and Destroy. Uh, I, I mean, I got the idea from Warhol's early interview magazines, I totally ripped them off the concept, everything, and except I, I did them better than Warhol because I was, the first Warhol's interviews, if you ever read them, they're really illiterate, full of spelling errors and bad grammar and way too much stuff that should have been edited out. And so I said, I'm not going to do that because I was an English major, for God's sake. <laughs> got to use the gifts you've got. So I did Search and Destroy, hand-typed on a the City Lights IBM correcting selectric typewriter. And that was such a boom because you could change typefaces with a little ball and you could make italic type fonts by changing the ball. And, I yeah, I just completely imitated Warhol's interview but made it better, I felt, you know, doing my Search and Destroy. I did 11 issues, and then we felt that punk had actually died, just like we felt the hippies had died in 67 with the, with all these 100,000 kids coming in, barefoot and all. And anyway. Once you'd had that idea, how easy was it to get it off the ground? I mean, did you do it almost immediately? No, it took me a long time to figure out how to really do it. I mean, like, I, it's just luck. And then I found a press that put out a local grocery store tabloid circular that's the same size as Search and Destroy, but maybe just one or two pages. 
and then I went to that press, and I, to my astonishment, they would give me free these big flats I could do layout on. And then I learned, oh, you got to have a light box, you got to have a T square, and you know the, the the flats had these light blue lines so that you could make straight lines. You know, you could put out a tabloid newspaper. On these, and they gave them free, so I took a whole bunch of them. I still have a few, and laid out all the search and destroys. But first, I had to pay two hundred dollars for a light box. I mean, these things are are a lot of money when you don't even make two hundred a month. But somehow, you get what you need in life, is my estimation. I mean, frankly, people started giving me stuff who work at real jobs. <laughs> You know, giving me art supplies, like the thing that was really expensive was this stuff called letter set or chart pack. And people started sort of stealing them, or should I say borrowing them from their jobs and giving them to me. I don't know. If you're imitating Warhol's interview magazine, you want to sort of look like it. And I know what happened. I really lucked out. There was a tiny indie art gallery a block away on Grand Avenue. I don't remember what it was called, but somehow I talked to the guy running the gallery, and his job was laying out a free newspaper weekly called the SF Advertiser. And he brought in a bunch of of real art students to help me, who obviously were sympathetic to punk. And the first layout meeting was at his meetings, plural, was at his place. So I had lots of luck meeting these art students at one fell swoop, thanks to this guy who ran the art gallery. And they all wanted to publish and be part of Search and Destroy. And then, you know, as soon as I put out one issue, all these people came aboard, photographers, you know, talented people, the right people. And so I lucked out. I mean, because I certainly couldn't afford to pay anyone. I could barely afford to pay the printing bill every time an issue was due. What did Ginsburg and Falangetti's $200 go towards? It was the first issue. And then another guy gave me 25 and another friend of mine gave me 200 Everyone needs a patron. <laughs> Take my word for it. Even you. Everyone needs patrons, people yeah. who can help them monetarily if possible, but at least contribute in other ways, like give photographs or do interviews, because I couldn't do everything anymore. I did everything for the first issue, but that, that was only 16 pages. You know, it became larger and larger, the publication. And what made Search and Destroy different to the other zines? Well, it's all what I call primary source material. In other words, a lot of other zines or magazines, and we didn't even have the word zine, by the way, then. I guess we called it a magazine then. But they all had mostly articles written by wannabe art critics or music critics or something. But mine, I said, I want primary source. I just want to if possible, mostly have interviews with the real musicians who write the songs and and form the bands or make films. I mean, I interviewed Amos Poe. He was a super early punk filmmaker from New York. In Search and Strike Number 10, I got to do my favorite writers, William S. Burroughs and J.G. Ballard, finally got interviews with them and put them in because I was such a huge fan of them before punk. And, and, and most of the people that I knew had Burroughs in their library, but not Ballard. So I kind of made it my mission to turn the world 
or the Americon and J.G. Ballard, because he was so fantastic. When we chatted last time, um, you said something about the zine that really, or the intention behind it, um, that really sort of stayed with me, which was that the anthropological, um, this anthropological approach that you kind of had to do these really deep interviews and really understand those people. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean... If I really wasn't thorough enough, but for my early interviews, I asked people to show me their closets because I, you know, there weren't any punk clothes <laughs> being made for the first issues. No one made them, you know. But I wanted to inventory people's clothes and their books, and that—that's standard anthropological approach. You, you might say the most literate or the most verbally proficient informants, you might call them, and you interview the hell out of them telling, well, what's your culture like? What's your life like, you know, in New Guinea or wherever? And then they tell you their their whole cosmology and cosmogony and <laughs> history as they know it without written language. Anyway, it was, it was an anthropological approach. Yeah, definitely. I, I consciously had that in mind. So I, I didn't know if Warhol had that in mind, so that was, I suppose I brought that to the table, try to do anthropological-style interviews of primary sources. And, um, yeah, yeah, so it's kind of fun to do all that. Oh, and God, I couldn't have, no way could I have done Search and Destroy without the invention of the cheap film camera, you know, like the Olympus XA was an early one, and a cheap tape recorder. Oh, the cassette got invented, a cheap recording format that was sort of democratic. Like, they were relatively cheap to buy, 99 cents. And, you know, and the recorders were relatively cheap, like 20 bucks. Although, remember, 20 bucks in 1977 was more like 200 now. <laughs> and of your editorial ethos, um, I remember you saying something along the lines of, um, you got to keep every word that serves, because if you take out too much, you destroy the style, and that you edit for three things, genius, humor, rebellion. Would you say that is still accurate? I'm glad you reminded me of what I said then. Um, I, I think what I said originally, my first editorial policy is every word must earn its keep, but if you remove too much, you risk damaging style. Because style is also important. Style is content to a certain degree. Like, you know, a, a person like William Burroughs or J.G. Ballard, you hardly have to edit at all because they, they have their style down. They're very concise, and they don't repeat a lot. Most people repeat. But I also love the idea of genius, humor, rebellion. I think that's, you know, that kind of sums it up. <laughs> That sums it up. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and what inspired you to then found and launch research? What was the main intention with that? Because a lot of the most intelligent people in punk wanted to go beyond, and they, they sort of formed this thing called industrial or noise music, or they didn't even do music like Mark Pauline of Survival Research Labs. He, he just wanted to make these crazy, huge 
machines and put on shows with the loudest explosions you've ever heard in your life and fire and flamethrowing and all this visual stuff that way transcended being a band in a nightclub. And, and so I said, this is, this is truly punk, but even though most people don't think of it, but I, but I can't be hamstrung by the word punk. So I did RE search, which is a more generic word, research, but I put a slash in it to make it more unique. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I mean, I'm interested in everything that's more or less alternative culture as it's being invented and imagined. And it could be anywhere in the world. It doesn't have to just be <laughs> privileged white people who invented punk. <laughs> Although there was an early, earliest black band in punk I knew was Bad Brains, but they were older. I mean, they they didn't show up to at least 79 or 80 or 81 before I ever heard of them. They're in Washington, D.C. And I, I like how with both Search and Destroy and then Research, um, you're kind of going with that uh, Bucky Fuller idea of being a verb, not a noun. Yeah, I'm a verb, not a noun. Yeah, that was, oh, Bucky Fuller was super revolutionary and key to me early in life. I met him and asked if I could be his secretary, but he, he said he didn't need me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good. I didn't really want to move to Carbondale, Illinois anyway. What I find really interesting, I think, is, um, you know, usually there's this huge divide between the beats, the hippies, the punks. You know, it's really, as you said, that they all have this desire to be radically different, even though the spirit and the energy is really the same. Um, but you sort of cross over. You cross over all of that. And I guess it's just that, as you said, that that alternative underground uh, counterculture, right? I call it a continuum, countercultural continuum, because you just have to pick out what's most rebellious and genius and humorous, as you put it, out of all of these countercultures, and you go for that. There's mediocrity. Mediocrities are everywhere. <laughs> you kind of try to ignore them. <laughs> Definitely. And, and the thing I love about... Um, you know, what you're talking about, and then obviously that verb, not a noun, is that it's it's dynamic, you know, it's um, kind of ever-evolving, it's not stagnating. Um, I mean, how do you feel sort of today with um, j just where we are in terms of, you know, that idea of obviously now we can iron everything out with technology, we can make everything completely perfect, we can kind of auto-tune and auto-process something within an inch of its life. Um, do you think we've, we've sort of lost a lot of that raw energy? It's a paradox, because even though you can find everything on the Internet, there is so much that it's, you need people to help you. How do you think we keep that sense of, you know, we talked about it at the beginning of the program when you said you still love to pick up a pen and, and write something. And, um, and obviously we're now so used to just using our phones and it's so rare. I mean, it's funny because actually one of the projects I've been working on recently is a 
postcard project that was in support of oh. USPS, um, which Mark Mothersbaugh uh, and I did. Um, and so we've spent a, a lot of time going through people's handmade postcards and we'll do an exhibition of them, you know, at the Bob Rauschenberg Gallery, and you know, which is wonderful. Um, but so that idea of these these things that are kind of, um, you know, in some ways they never go out of fashion, but we can really lose connection with them because it's now so easy to just be, you know, permanently online. The trouble with being online is that nothing's permanent. There's so much that's already disappeared, as we know, uh, online. I'm so grateful for that woman who captured, who downloaded all that footage of January 6th inside the Capitol building where the senators were, you know, someone saved all that stuff before it got disappeared. One woman. Women are the, are the movers and shakers more than men. She captured, downloaded all the stuff that was on Parler, P-A-R-L-E-R. You know, otherwise it'd be hard to prosecute all these criminals. So I, I love material, real things. And, and I forgot to say that Punk rock was also influenced by mail art, which was kind of an underground before then. Because art used to be thought of as something just for the rich people or the privileged or something. But then surrealists invented ideas like art must be made by all and poetry must be made by all. So surrealism was another key inspiration for me. And I guess if I were to sum myself up in four or five words, what am I like? Sort of punk, surrealist, black humor. Um, Smiley. Smiling, subversive, I guess. I, I mean, I'm against the, whatever the status quo is, you know, I'm against it. <laughs> no, I learned that from Groucho Marx. He said, whatever it is, I'm against it. That's like a key thing. I learned that at UC Berkeley. I love, um, I wouldn't want to be a, a member of any club that would have me. <laughs> He as a member, yeah, exactly. Those are two key, key thoughts. You know, I'm pretty much anti-group, as you know, because every time you have groups, you have hierarchies, and then you have they're usually white males taking over. So, with that in mind, um, what music would you send into space to reflect our humanity? Yeah, I, I still love what Perry and Kingsley did in a. And they were actually thinking about her space when they put out the album, The In Sound from Way Out. You know, P-E-R-E-Y and Kingsley, K-I-N-G-S-L-E-Y. And I, I interviewed both of them for my Incredibly Strange Music book. I did two of them. Sadly, they're both long out of print. Good luck finding a copy. But I think they're still kind of futuristic and, and humoristic. They're both futuristic and humoristic. Is there a particular track from the album, or would you send the whole record? I just would play the whole thing on my turntable, you know, and then flip it over. Because it pretty much doesn't have lyrics, which would be a sort of a stumbling block to a listener. Yeah, it's pretty much all weird music. But it's funny sounding to me. If you can put humor in music, I think they succeeded. It's witty. And hopefully even a Martian can appreciate it or a Venusian. <laughs> don't, don't remind me of that horrible phrase, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. I hate that. Me too. Good. 
<laughs> Good instinct. Okay, well, let's take a listen to the first track um, off the In Sound from Way Out by Perry and Kingsley. And that was the In Sound from Way Out by Perry and Kingsley. Uh, and that was the album that Vale would send into space um, because it just feels to you like it fits out there. Absolutely, yes. I, I mean, I could think of things like sending the teddy bear's picnic out to space, into outer space, but that's very lyric and English language dependent. And I'm not sure, you know... Aliens in outer space understand English. Ed would get it. Anyway, Teddy Bear's Picnic was one of my favorite songs that I learned early as a child, I guess. You were going to ask me, what what would I play at my funeral or something? Yeah, that's the next question, Vale. You're doing my job for me. Thanks. (laughs) I hate to say this cliche, but, you know, any two people talking form a third bind. And if you're lucky, the, and the Holy Grail is to say something that no one's ever said before. Well, I don't know if we reach the Holy Grail in this hour, but we're trying. And I just self-promotionally thought, I guess I'd like to, my song that I wrote, the lyrics and the music for, called Corona. I wrote it in early April when this coronavirus hit and the lockdown hit, and I said, oh, this is going to happen a long time we're going to be under lockdown because this virus will keep on mutating. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happened. The South African virus, the the, the Northern England virus, I don't know. There's probably one in Brazil and Mexico. We'd, I mean, Russia, we don't even know about. <laughs> okay, so then moving on to the very sad, devastating time when you won't be with us any longer. Um, we're going to have the song Corona by Vale himself um, that he wrote during this endless lockdown period so let's take a listen to Corona by V Vale Corona We wondered how the world would change Eating bats and pangolins Our diet made us lose our breath Then global travel spread The death corona Corona You cleverly just killed the old your job we got their gold there's so much wealth for everyone there's much more land under the sun corona you made the world a better place by thinning out the human race 
You kill the old and in the way. No happiness is here to stay. Corona. Corona. The animals are happier. Corona. So many humans gone away. The water's clear, the skies are blue. New paradise is yours to view. Corona. Corona. We call you now our lucky stars. Corona. We stay at home and pass the hours. We live our life in ivory towers. And now we're glad, cause we've got ours. Corona. You made the world a better place by thinning out the human race. You killed the old and in the way. New paradise is here to stay. Corona. 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 And that was Corona by V Vale, and that was the song that Vale would have play at his memorial. Um, have you been writing a lot of music during lockdown? I don't call it writing. I, I think anyone can do it. It's like, it's weird what I do. It's called channeling. It's a lot easier for me just to sit down and improv. I've kind of been doing it all my life, but except I never had access to piano much. But lately I have access to two pianos. And uh, I think anyone and everyone probably does do this. They take a chance. It's like you're, you're taking a risk, tightrope walking or something. You're hoping something will come out that maybe you'll like or is listenable a few more times. I'll send you, if you send me your email, which I guess you did, I'll send you a, a few just piano improvs. But they're really what I call channeling. I don't think it's crazy. I mean, I a lot of my songs definitely come lyrics and melody and and kind of everything together. And I do exactly what you do. You know, I grab the phone and just press record and sort of see what what comes out. And um, oh, it's a, it's an amazing feeling. It's it's like the it feels almost like the closest thing to magic. So. Yeah, that's real magic. Yeah, it is. Screw all this Aleister Crowley BS. We've now moved almost to the end of the show, um, and uh, obviously it's it's always impossible to try and um, condense such a life into a tiny bottle of orange juice. But you know we've done a pretty <laughs> a pretty good job, um, and. 
you know, with research and um, and all that you've done within that um, publishing house, is there a publication or a piece of work that you're particularly proud of, or is it more about the whole? Well, let's put it this way. I live up, pay my rent by mail orders, and today I got three mail orders for the Industrial Culture Handbook, if that says anything. And one of them also was an order for my research four or five with Burroughs on the cover. So that still has legs. And I, I kind of would like to promote the books under my own name, like there's quotations by V. Vale and the book of Vale essays called Message from Your Editor. But those are not huge hits, but I wish someone would buy them. I think the the my book of quotations is funny. I'd like to think it's funny. If I've got a flavor of your quotations from this alone, I'm definitely going to buy that book, yeah. Oh, please do. Buy the quotes one. And people like the essays one, too, but the the quotes one, you can open it up anywhere and take a little trip. <laughs> and what do you hope that you've preserved for future generations with everything that you've done? It's all spirit. My publishing imprints, if you want to call them that, they are, like you said, and observed. They're verbs, not nouns. I mean, you are what you do. You start out having an identity crisis in life, like, who am I? And then my answer is, it's everything you've done. That's who you are. You've got to do something. <laughs> and everyone can draw. I mean, they go to any kindergarten, everyone's drawing like mad. Everyone can do all these things, talk and get recorded, like on radio or write and and put out a book or scene. Or There's definitely more money to be made if you make art as opposed to writing, but then it's also a lot of luck involved in finding someone to support you, i.e. or the right gallerist to get to promote you and get your work out there and who has connections with patrons that have enough money to buy your art, mm. stuff like that is very complicated. And it probably would have helped my life if I'd moved to New York ages ago, but I, did I do it? No. <laughs> or even L.A. Because New York and L.A. have much more media than San Francisco. It's a small town here. But, you know, we soldier on and keep doing what we want because where I live in North Beach, I think, is as good as it gets. I'm a block away from everything I need to survive. I don't have to drive. I just walk to Chinatown, and they have the cheapest, good-quality produce fresh. And, you know, a drugstore is a block away. The post office is a block away. I mean, you know, it's sort of a car-free lifestyle. And there's something to be said for that. There's also something to be said for owning a car and getting out the hell out of town in the nature somewhere. <laughs> and what is the album that you'd pass on to the next generation? When you asked me this before, the first thing that came into mind was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Arturo Toscanini version with the chorus. I definitely have composer envy for that piece. I mean, I think it's an amazing piece. But I also love a lot of Bach, Toccata and Fugue and D. So I'm a huge Bach fan, personally. Maybe I imitate him a little in my piano, but not much, because he, he, he is way more polyphonic than I could ever be. And uh, I sort of like the idea of having 
always having two or three melodies going along at the same time. Okay, well, in just a minute, we're going to finish with Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9 by Toscanini, um, which is Vale's choice of music that he would pass on to the next generation. Um, but just before we get to that and say goodbye, Vale, um, what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? Oh, the music choices? Yeah. Originality, imagination, breakthrough kind of... I mean, I don't know if there's much humor in the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven, but there certainly is majesty. I don't know. I'm kind of in favor of old-fashionedness, impossible ideas of nobility. You know, everyone's now just a money grubber and opportunist. (laughs) But what happened to doing things for... I don't know, some weird higher motives. I totally agree. Oh, good. (laughs) And thinking about media today, what do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost? It's just a miracle that I'm not ever leaving home. I can play practically any piece of music or see any movie or, for that matter, probably, I don't do this, probably read any book that's ever been written since the beginning of time. I mean, that's the wealth that we have with the invention of the laptop plus internet or the iPhone, bring the iPhone in there too. But then I think the hardest thing is discrimination. Let's say you only had a week to live. What are the greatest films you could possibly see in that week? You know, minute for minute, a film gives you more experience than in a shorter amount of time than anything. It's like living another lifetime almost in 90 minutes. So I would say stay away from all news if you possibly can, because you'll find it all anyway, even if you don't want to. And spend your time online with, I don't know, finding the greatest films, music that's ever been. And then books I use the public library for because I'm just addicted to reading on paper. I don't want to read on an iPad. So I don't know. It, I, I think everyone should be a writer, though. That's what develops you the most is notebooks, I think. Muscle memory, writing on notebooks, I think they help you more than anything else. Develop all the potential you were born with, become who you were meant to be, etc., which is always a boat, I guess. You know, whatever you are is different from what you were 10 years ago. Mm. And and whatever you'll be in the future, you don't even know. So I like the idea of spontaneity, not over-scheduling, just being open and inventing life instead of, like, thinking about it and plotting it too much. I like I love spontaneity and humor that way. Well, we should let people know that we did this interview spontaneously. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, we better have. <laughs> hate the idea that we wrote out all our script before we did the interview. And Vale, very last question, and you sort of covered it before, but um, this is the, I don't know, the final note and the essence that I like to end on. Um, what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? I hope to leave behind all the print that I've generated and all my interviews online and all that. I mean, it's all kind of one body of work. So uh, naturally, one hopes to be remembered, but, you know, history is the harshest critic. Marcel Duchamp said you'd be lucky if you got remembered 30 years after you died. Well, he at least 
and still being influential. Without hope, we have nothing. Let's put it that way. So we all hope to be remembered a little bit, don't you think? I hope so. Is there a an idea or um, a sort of sense of the the spirit of of something that you hope to have left with all that incredible work. I say life is personal. Everything in life is personal. I hope you have my goals of life sheet somewhere because I say everything in life is personal and and we're here for mutual aid as much as possible. It's not always possible, but we're here to help others and hopefully they'll help us a little bit. You know, without being a martyr either. I mean, it's more fun to be nice to people and to joke with them and laugh than be mean, <laughs> I would think, <laughs> or be standoffish or something. I mean, you have nothing to lose by kind of being friendly to everyone you meet, I think, because usually people are nice, I've found, knock on wood. <laughs> that is a, a wonderful way to end this show. Um, so... Vale, thank you so much for your time with us, uh, with me. And um, we're going to end now with Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, the Toscanini version. Um, and once again, Vale, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was fun. Maybe if, maybe if I ever go to L.A. again, we can meet up. <laughs> I would love that. I would absolutely love that. Or I'll come to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, after after the pandemic, after the lockdown, okay. In the of Wolfgang, Wolfgang,